It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I know that you all are just dying to hear what I have to say about a whole variety of topics. So we're going to try to make this podcast available just a little bit earlier. Should drop about noon Eastern, uh, about an hour or so earlier than we have been doing it. Hope that, you know, enables us to catch the lunch crowd and you won't have to wait to get all the insights that you've come to expect from Media Buzz Meter or watch me fall on my face, whichever may be the case. Hope you had a good weekend. Hope you had a chance to see Media Buzz. The segments are online. The one that I did with Jetta Diabila on Pierce Morgan quitting and the Royals and the Harry, Meghan, Oprah fallout was really a lot of fun and seems to have gotten a fair amount of attention. And we did the politics and all that other stuff as well. Now, those of you who are uh, regular listeners to this podcast know that one of my pet peeves, I've got a whole list of them because, you know, I'm just getting cranky. But one of my pet peeves is, you know, when movie stars or other other entertainers, uh, Matthew McConaughey is the latest one, you know, maybe he'll run for governor of Texas, you know, just let it be known uh, that they are considering a run for political office. And by the way, have you seen my new movie, bought my new book? You know, it's just a, a PR device. You know, in the vast majority of cases, they never actually run. But, you know, there's a certain weakness by reporters. Like, well, this is what he or she said, so we'll just report it. Well, now the Daily Mail has a story about Meghan Markle. Now, this is a, in a little different category because she is not saying it herself, but... Apparently, people around her are promoting the fact that now that she has come back to the colonies, uh, this Duchess of Sussex uh, may well run for political office in the United States. And the office that she's thinking about is um, president. She's thinking about running for president of the United States. Uh, from the uh, mail story, oh, it begins by talking about rumors circulating around Westminster. So... Rumors? Is that the basis for the story? Anyway, a senior labor figure, veteran of Tony Blair's Downing Street administration, claimed to the Mail on Sunday that uh, Meghan Markle was networking. Wow, she was networking among senior Democrats to a view, with a view to building a campaign and fundraising teams for a tilt at the U.S. presidency. Uh, source close to the Duchess declined to comment. Uh, Harry and Meghan last year issued a thinly veiled attack on Donald Trump by urging voters to reject hate speech. Okay. Uh, an unnamed source said the Blairite, that would be Tony Blair, internationalist and Democratic Party networks are buzzing with talk about Meghan's political ambitions. Now, um, my reaction to that is, give me a bloody break. I mean, come on. She's not going to run for president. If she ran for president, she'd get it. I mean, an act member, an actress running for president? Can you imagine an actor being, okay, well, maybe that's not a good... Comparison, but nevertheless, uh, U.S. constitutional experts responded she would have to renounce her royal title if she wanted to hold public office in the States. Well, that would be an interesting campaign. I mean, I'd cover that. I suppose there'd be 30-second ads against her saying, you know, she couldn't even manage her place in the British royalty, and now you're going to entrust her with nuclear weapons. But nevertheless, that's the talk of London. Uh, there was some talk yesterday on the Sunday shows, particularly Fox News Sunday, about the fact that more than 50 days into his presidency, uh, Joe Biden has still not held a news conference. He is going to talk to George Stephanopoulos on Good Morning America on Wednesday. So that would be a first sort of longer interview. You know, what he does is he takes a couple of, by my count, he took one question last week and he wasn't even scheduled to do that. And I understand it's all about staying on message and 
discipline and all that. And, you know, when you hold a news conference, you know, anybody can ask about anything and it might take you off your game. But I think it's a responsibility of the president to do this. And many of my media colleagues are now starting to make an issue out of this. You know, by this point in the presidency, every one of his recent predecessors, Obama, Bush, Trump, had held at least one full-scale news conference. Uh, Jonathan Swan of Axios on Fox News Sunday yesterday um, I'd like him to do a press conference every week, but we should be clear that they are largely performance art. But even if that's true, um, you know, it, it's revealing to see a president take questions on a variety of issues and how he handles it. It's just, you know, I, I think it is part of the, I think it should be in the Constitution. It's part of the job description, okay? Uh, says Swan, I'd love to see Biden do not just press conferences, but serious sit-down one-on-one interviews. Not for the benefit of the interviewer, but for the public. Answer serious depth questions with follow-ups. Now, I happen to think, you know, Biden is famous for his gaffes and blunders, and sometimes he stumbles, and sometimes he stutters, uh, or has remnants of a childhood stutter. Um, You know, he has a vast knowledge of government after, you know, 45 flipping years uh, in the Senate and as vice president, so I don't think he does badly on it. So during that segment, Karl Rove was asked by Chris Wallace, And Rove said, well, that could be one of their concerns, that he's just not up to it. At the age of 78, he's lost a few steps, and he's not going to look good in the news conference. And Chris jumped in and said, well, let me make clear. I'm not saying that. I'm saying we know he can make gaffes. He can go off on tangents. Is that a concern he doesn't stay on message? Look, people know he's 78 years old. He he will be the oldest president we've ever had. And... um, I think if he mumbles or stumbles, like they'll cut him some slack. But you can't duck out. You can't opt out. Uh, and it does fuel the concerns that, oh, you know, I mean, there are a lot of people out there, you know, many of whom voted for Donald Trump. It's like, oh, you know, uh, Biden can barely string two sentences together. Well, anybody who saw the debates, both in the primaries and the two general election debates, the first one, you know, he was constantly interrupted, or, you know, watched him in the uh, two-hour Anderson Cooper town hall, an hour and a half, but, you know, it wasn't exactly a grilling, but he had to answer uh, on a wide variety of subjects. I mean, Biden can do this. I think his staff is overprotecting him unless he's the one who wants it this way. All right, let's get down to business number one. Fascinating scoop in the Washington Post about a top advisor to Andrew Cuomo. He's New York State's vaccine czar. So he's the guy... Um, his name is Larry Schwartz. He's the guy in charge of, this, of determining where the vaccines go, who gets them, which counties get them, and all of that. So according to this Washington Post story, which is you know basically confirmed by this dude, um, in the past couple of weeks, Larry Schwartz has called county officials in attempts to gauge their loyalty to Governor Cuomo during the sexual harassment investigation, according to multiple officials. One Democratic county executive so unsettled by this uh, that he filed a notice of an impending ethics complaint with the state attorney general's office. Uh, The executive feared the county's vaccine supply, his county's vaccine supply, could suffer if Schwartz was not pleased with the executive's response to questions about support of the governor. This is, to put it mildly, an absolute outrage, an outrage. And as part of that, according to this one unnamed county executive, you know, there was the talk about, well, how do you feel about Andrew Cuomo and and him staying in office and what's your view on these sexual harassment allegations? And then, by the way, let's talk about the vaccine distribution for your county. 
At best, it was inappropriate, said this county executive, speaking uh, anonymously out of fear the Cuomo administration would retaliate. At worst, it was clearly over the ethical line. So Schwartz uh, talked to the Post. He says, it's a 30-year uh, friend of Andrew. I did nothing wrong. I've always conducted myself in a manner commensurate to a high ethical standard. I know this guy's a lawyer or not, but who talks like that? You say, I acted ethically. A matter commensurate to a high ethical standard. Longtime lieutenant. Uh, he was once the secretary to the governor. And he said, look, you know, um, everyone took my call. Nobody indicated they were uncomfortable. What do you expect them to say? Uh, did Cuomo ask you to do this? It was my decision to make the calls. Uh, Schwartz told the executive, I'm not calling about vaccines. And um, Schwartz said at one point, if your position on the governor changes, I'd appreciate a heads up. So he's politicking. He's trying to help Andrew Cuomo save his job. And the executive said, this is putting me in an impossible position where I potentially have to choose between like a weird political loyalty to a governor who controls a lot of things, not just vaccines, and is known to be vindictive, and on the other side, doses of life-saving, life-saving vaccine every week from my residents who are literally desperate for them. Now, what's fascinating to me, remember when in the beginning the first accuser, Lindsey Boylan, and the networks wouldn't cover it, nothing on the network, evening news, uh, a 39-second item on CNN, uh, brief mentions on MSNBC. How is that looking now? that the governor is having to cling to his job. And what you have here in the time since I talked to you on Friday is more big-name Democrats jumping on the bandwagon saying, Andrew Cuomo must go. Now, I don't expect Cuomo to resign. And in fact, there's a due process argument that he's entitled to have the state AG complete the investigation. But I think what it tells you when so many people of your own party are saying you must go, they've made a calculation that he probably is not going to be able to cling to power. Because if he does, then he'd still have enough power to be difficult to deal with, to retaliate, you name it. But if he doesn't, you don't want to be uh, among the minority of Democrats who never stood up to the guy, who you know thought it was okay, because then you can be accused of being all right with the sexual harassment allegations, not to mention the nursing home scandal. So we have... Uh, the New York Times editorial page kind of almost walking up to the line of saying he should quit, noting that um, the editorial page endorsed Cuomo for another term as governor in 2018 and pointing out, hey, don't blame us, uh, that he was strategic and at times bullying in his use of power, driven and maddeningly evasive. Then the editorial now, the one that ran yesterday, said, well, there's a lot Cuomo can can be proud of. And he's entitled to investigation, blah, blah, blah. But the Times says the reality is that Mr. Cuomo has now lost the support of his party and governing partners. The Democrats who control the state legislature appear willing to impeach him, to say nothing of of Republicans. New York's congressional delegation and city leaders, key to his base, have called on him to resign. What the governor failed to grasp during his news conference on Friday when he said, no way, I'm not quitting. Uh, was that he owes the public a far more robust explanation for the slew of credible harassment complaints against him. At this point, it is hard to see how Mr. Cuomo can continue to do the public's important business without political allies or public confidence. So that's not exactly a ringing endorsement. Nancy Pelosi was asked about this uh, on, on Sunday. She said, well, you know, uh, Governor Cuomo should seriously consider whether he can do the job. The exact quote uh, is uh, on ABC's This Week. 
the House Speaker saying, the governor should look inside his heart. He loves New York to see if he can govern effectively. And that could be one of the considerations he has. And what that really means, if you translate from political speak, is, of course he should quit, but I don't want to get out in front of him. He's going to have to make that decision on his own. Uh, President Biden was asked, uh, you know, shouted question when he was back in Delaware. He said, well, I think the investigation is underway. We should see what it brings us. That's as far as the president would go. Chuck Schumer, the majority leader of the Senate on MSNBC. This is an awful crisis in New York and elsewhere. We need sure and steady leadership. I salute the brave woman who came forward. Uh, Governor Cuomo has lost the confidence of his governing partners and so many New Yorkers. So for the good of the state, he should resign. So you have Chuck Schumer saying he should resign. You have Kirsten Gillibrand, who delayed for quite a bit. He should resign. You have a majority of the New York uh, State congressional delegation. You've got Democrats in the state assembly. They control both chambers in Albany, moving to impeach. You have AOC. He should resign. You have Bill de Blasio, you know, prancing around. I mean, they hate each other. He should resign yesterday. This is what happens, and yet... None of these people can force the governor to resign. And he can say, look, I was elected by the people to a four-year term. I deny some of these allegations. I'm sorry I made the women uncomfortable, and so on. But wow, I mean, his support is just absolutely crumbling at a very rapid rate. All right, story number two. This is how newspapers um, make clear that they have an agenda. This is a lead story in the New York Times today. It's a news story. It's not an editorial. It's not a columnist. It's about the big voting rights bill that Democrats are pushing on the Hill. And it begins, state and national voting rights advocates are waging the most consequential political struggle over access to the ballot since the civil rights era. A fight increasingly focused on far-reaching federal overhaul of election rules and a last-ditch bid to, over, to offset a wave of voting restrictions sweeping Republican-controlled state legislatures. Now, it's true. A number of state legislatures uh, controlled by the GOP are trying to make it more difficult to vote. And this battle has been going on, let me just digress, for as long as I can remember, for my whole adult lifetime. The Democrats always want to make it easier to vote because they feel particularly a lower turnout among poor and minorities hurts them. Republicans always want to make it a little bit more difficult to vote because they think that more of their voters will turn out. So, you know, neither party has clean hands here. They're both trying to win elections. So you have this H.R. 1, and there's this huge battle over it. So let me come back to this time story. The federal uh, voting bill, which passed the House this month with only Democratic support, that should tell you something, includes a landmark expansion of voting rights, an end to partisan gerrymandering of congressional districts, and new transparency requirements on the flood of dark money financing elections. The energy and support for it radiates from well-financed veteran organizations to unpaid volunteers. Um, it is engaging Democrats in Washington, voting rights activists in crucial states. Um, but after approval of the Democratic bill in the House, the campaign to pass the For the People Act, designated Senate Bill Number 1, appears to be on a collision course with the filibuster, because you're not going to get 60 votes. So I don't even think the Democrats necessarily have 50 votes. Um, to succeed, Democrats will have to convince a handful of moderate holdouts to change the rules at least for this legislation. So, you know, the Times is basically saying, and again, this is a news story. This is a great piece of legislation. It's needed. In order to get it, we've got to at least suspend the filibuster, either permanently or for this one-time exception. Um, 
Activists believe the cost for failure given the Republican limits on voting would be so high that some accommodation on the filibuster could become inevitable. And then there's a quote from uh, activists for End Citizens United and Let America Vote. Um, we are at a once-in-a-generation moment, she says. And that gets in the headline, quote, a once-in-a-generation moment. So that's totally, you know, an advocacy piece in my view. Now, there was an attempt, some paragraphs down, to include the other side. So uh, the president of a Republican-aligned American Action Network is quoted as saying, the bill is the opposite of good governance. It's a cynical attempt by the left to put their thumb on the scales of democracy and engineer our laws to help them win elections. They want to limit free speech, funnel public funds into their campaign accounts, seize from the states the ability to run their own free and fair elections and then spin it like this is really about protecting voting rights. So naturally, you know, one side says this is just a power grab. The other side says this is protecting the most fundamental right of every American citizen against uh, these yahoos in the states. The truth lies somewhere in between. It really is about both parties trying to win elections. I'm personally in favor of being more lenient and allowing people to vote as long as there's not fraud. And then, of course, that's always the Republican rationale for these state laws. We want to make sure there's no fraud. Well, we had this argument in 2020. There was very little evidence of widespread fraud. And again, that's not me. That's all the court cases that the Trump, Trump and his allies brought. That's the DOJ investigation under Bill Barr, all of that. But doesn't mean there's no fraud. It doesn't mean there can't be fraud in the future. But that's always the question of where you set the legal bar. All right, story number three on COVID. Axios has a fascinating piece about uh, the battle on Capitol Hill over the fact that only 75% of the House is confirmed as having been vaccinated. Now, you recall early on when, uh, when Biden as president-elect was getting the vaccine, uh, it was and other political leaders, it was made available to every member of Congress. So that is not an issue. And yet, uh, there are 25% of House members who either have refused to get the vaccine, haven't reported getting it, or are avoiding it for some medical reason. And um, that's it raises a really interesting question because um, there's a big debate going on now because right now you have a lot of not only social distancing inside the House chamber, but you have a lot of remote voting. It's basically slowing down the legislative schedule. If, if all or almost all members of Congress were to get the vaccine, then they could all get together in the chamber without fear of infecting each other, and that would speed up the process. Majority Leader Steny Hoyer uh, uh, debated uh, Majority Minority Whip Steve Scalise on the floor the other day. Uh, Scalise said, now that we have seen reports that roughly 75% of all members in the House have had a vaccination for COVID-19, Scalise says there's a strong desire to get back to a regular floor schedule, to which Hoyer said it would be a lot simpler if every member had been vaccinated. I mean, it's true. You want to go into a a room where 25% of the people are at least in danger of having COVID? I can understand that. Which brings me to the broader point. There was an NPR PBS survey released the other day showing that nearly half of Republican men and 47% of those who supported Donald Trump last year said they would not choose to be vaccinated, even if the, virus, even if the vaccinations were made available to them. Only 10% of Biden supporters said they would choose not to be vaccinated. So, I mean, this is a problem for the country and for the potential for recent herd immunity. I mean, up until now, the problem has been horribly maddening, confusing, and frustrating state programs and a lack of availability. But 
we are going to reach the point, probably by May, when there will be enough doses available. Everybody won't be able to get it all at once, obviously. And Anthony Fauci uh, on Meet the Press said he found those, results, those poll results so disturbing. And when Chris Wallace asked Fauci on Fox News Sunday, would it help if Donald Trump came out and made a personal appeal for people to get vaccinated? Because there's a public service announcement with Jimmy Carter, George W. Bush, uh, Barack Obama, and Bill Clinton, all it shows them getting shots and saying people should get shots, but Donald Trump declined to participate. And Fauci said it would make all the difference in the world. He's a very widely popular person among Republicans. Now, is Trump going to do that? He did at his CPAC speech, there was one sentence about get vaccinated, but I'm pretty troubled. And I guess it goes back to like, do you trust government? Is this all an effort by the Biden administration? I mean, but I just, I, I, I have a hard time wrapping my head around it. It is this horrible disease that has killed what now? Almost 530,000 Americans, made many others sick, has, has crippled our economy. Miraculously, there are now three vaccines, Pfizer, Moderna, J&J. And half of Republicans say they don't want, Republican men, I should say, say they don't want to get it. it. You know, lots and lots of people have gotten it. There's some side effects. You feel bad for a day or two, some people worse than others, and then you're fine and you're protected from COVID-19. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, number four. Speaking of the former president of the United States, Politico has a piece, which I think is kind of premature, but I'll share some of it with you anyway. He backed away from creating a third party, true. He soured on the costly prospect of launching his own TV empire or social media startup, true. His vow to target disloyal Republicans with personally recruited primary challengers has taken a backseat to conventional endorsements of senators who refuse to indulge his quest to overturn the 2020 election. Now, here's the key part. Says Politico, although he was supposed to build a massive political apparatus to keep his MAGA movement afloat, it's unclear to Republicans what his PAC is actually doing beyond entangling itself in disputes with Republican icons and the party's fundraising arms. There's all, you know, can you use Trump's likeness? Can you not use Trump's likeness? Ex-President Donald Trump finds himself adrift while in political exile. And Republicans and even some allies say he is disorganized, torn between playing the role of antagonist and party leader. And here's a person close to the former president saying there's no apparatus, no structure, and part of that is due to a lack of political understanding on Trump's behalf. Uh, GOP strategist Matt Gorman said uh, he doesn't have the same political infrastructure he did three months ago as president. So the bottom line here, and this was used in the headline, the version of Trump that has emerged in the month and a half since he left office is far from the political Godzilla many expected him to be. He was supposed to unleash hell on a party apparatus that recoiled when his supporters stormed the Capitol on January 6th. Anyway, it goes on. The result is political whiplash as the foreign president shifts from wanting to support the GOP with his resources and grassroots appeal uh, to uh, one day refocus one day to refocusing on his own brand and thirst for vengeance the next. Well, I would just throw in here that you know it's only been six weeks, and Donald Trump has a good sense of timing. Uh, you know, I'll, some of those six weeks, one of those six weeks was taken up with the second impeachment trial. He gave the CPAC speech. You know, um, I don't think he has any interest in standing aside uh, while Biden builds up momentum. But at the same time, you know, you can't have a comeback if you don't kind of go away. So he's got to raise some money. 
He's got to build a political infrastructure. He's got a few of his former aides working for him, at least part-time. And um, he's got to figure out how he's going to do this. He doesn't want to undermine the whole Republican Party. On the other hand, as he said in some statement, he doesn't want to raise money for rhinos, rhinos being defined as any Republican who doesn't support him or who voted for impeachment or conviction. One other interesting note, the people who are helping him screen uh, candidates for possible primary endorsements are Brad Parscale, his uh, fired campaign manager, Bill Stepien, his replacement campaign manager, and another aide named Justin Clark, while Corey Lewandowski and Dave Bossy are in talks about launching a new fundraising entity on his behalf. Um, interesting quote here from Jason Miller, who was the spokesman for the campaign and who I've interviewed many times. Uh, he said on a podcast that um, Trump had told him, Jason Miller, that he, Miller, could make a little news by relaying Trump's thoughts on Sunday's bombshell Oprah interview with Harry and Meghan. You know, this is the kind of thing that Trump used to do just dashing off on Twitter without even batting an eye. Uh, Jason Miller, when I was talking to the president this morning, he's like, yeah, she's no good. I said that and now everybody's seeing it. But if you realize, if you say anything negative about Meghan Markle, you get canceled. Look at Piers. This is all Jason Miller quoting Donald Trump. But it's interesting, and Miller's saying this on the record, that Donald Trump, in order to put this out, I mean, he could have put out a statement denouncing Meghan Markle if he wanted to, doesn't have the social media outlet, so he gives it to a guy to say on a podcast, knowing it will get out, and it does. I've seen several references to how Trump says Meghan Markle is no good. All right, number five... Uh, the curious case of Republican Senator from Wisconsin, Ron Johnson. Well, he is getting beat up, uh, particularly by uh, never-Trumpers and Democrats and liberals, for something he said a few days ago that I just find absolutely inexplicable. And I'm not, you know, Ron Johnson's entitled to his views as a conservative Republican. I'm not somebody who beats up on the senator reflexively. But in a radio interview, he said, you know what, I didn't feel any fear from the Trump supporters who attacked the Capitol building on January 6th. Well, why? Uh, because, says Senator Johnson, they were people that love this country, that respect law enforcement, and would never do anything to break a law. Let me just stop there. These were people who smashed windows, invaded the Capitol, our citadel of democracy, were beating up policemen, there were five deaths, they were ransacking uh, offices. They were making threats. They were shouting, hang Mike Pence. And Ron Johnson says he's not afraid of them because they respect law enforcement. Does he know that a Capitol policeman died? Would never do anything to break a law. But then comes the second part of the quote. Had the tables been turned, says Johnson, and President Trump won the election, and those were tens of thousands of Black Lives Matter and Antifa protesters, I might have been a little concerned. Now, if it sounds to you like he's okay with white lawbreakers, but is afraid of potential black lawmakers, I don't see any other way you can read it. And among those beating up on him was Morning Joe, uh, this morning on MSNBC, Joe Scarborough, saying that guy, Ron Johnson, said people who were bashing law enforcement officers' brains in with American flags and cracking their skulls and jamming their heads in doors that were beating law enforcement officers to death um, 
and law enforcement officers were saying they were sure they were going to die and wondering how their four girls were going to survive without having their father because he'd been killed by Trump terrorists. These people right here are the people that Ron Johnson says truly respect law enforcement. Ron Johnson, says Scarborough, wants his listeners to know he's a bigot. Well, I wouldn't go that far, but what I would say is that unless the senator wants to come out and clarify it or say he misspoke or something, I don't really see what he was trying to accomplish here. He's basically saying black protesters are really scary folks who might attack and kill people. But white protesters, as long as they support Donald Trump, like, they're okay. I wasn't afraid. Well, you've talked with many members of Congress, including Republicans, have talked about how scared they were. They were hiding in offices for hours because of the complete failure uh, to, to request the National Guard in advance, to bring in the National Guard. I just don't get it. I mean, look, members of Congress say a lot of things. I don't, you know, they have free speech. They have views. They can say whatever the hell they want. It's not my job to agree or disagree, but sometimes when it causes a huge stink, I want to point that out. And here, I mean, he said these things a few days ago, but it is really gaining traction now, and I can understand why, given the horror that we all watched unfold on our television screens on January 6th, which is just a couple of months ago. It's not ancient history, folks. Uh, it's still pretty chilling. In fact, when they replayed some of that violence, at Trump's impeachment trial, which is just over a month ago. It, you know, even though I watched all of it live, I was transfixed, it was really scary stuff to have to relive that and remember what an awful day that was. And I might add how much worse it could have been, how lucky we were, how, uh, except for a few brave officers and a little bit of luck, there might have been much higher casualties. And I wonder what Ron Johnson would have said then. Well, once again, Hope you had a good weekend. Hope you had a great day. Check out Media Buzz if you didn't get a chance to watch it. You can subscribe here in lots of places, including Apple iTunes. And we will see you all tomorrow with more BuzzFeed. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.